Alex. Delighted to meet you, man. Thanks so much for taking some time to come on the show. I uh, really appreciate it. You too. This is fascinating. I'm ready for this. Excited. I'm always fascinated. People people are very interesting. And when we have an, an alignment on values, it's always interesting to see why you're doing what you're doing, how do you came to your conclusions, and everyone comes from a different angle. And that's one of the favorite yeah. things I, I have about uh, interviewing lots of different people. We always like to get this show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing right now. Yeah. So cut me off if I go too long. I mean, I don't normally talk about myself, but um, I'm a, you know, I got a job working for a senator when I was 18. And uh, that job helped me pay for college. I got a degree eventually in Soviet studies. Uh, I got promoted in the Senate and I eventually got a job on the Senate Appropriations Committee. I was responsible for the, the U.S. nuclear weapons budgets. And uh, that was my first exposure to serious discussion about climate change. I remember I was at Lawrence Livermore uh, National Laboratory uh, meeting with some weapons scientists and some of them pulled me aside and said, hey, we want to talk to you about climate change. And they ran some models about what they were thinking would happen from in, as a result of climate change over the coming decades. And, and that, you know, that started my interest in climate. I've, I'm a lifelong Republican, um, but I've always been close to the scientific community. I've always acknowledged climate change. And so I saw a, increasingly a divergence between where my party was and where climate science was. And I, I have thought that at some point, there's going to have to be a reconvergence. I mean, you can't have science and policy being sort of on divergent paths. Eventually, there has to be a reckoning there. Either the science has to change or the policy has to change. And uh, in the intervening years, I became staff director of the Senate Energy Committee. I did the energy policy for a while. I uh, worked at the Nuclear Energy Institute. I was senior vice president of government affairs there, did the government affairs work for the, nuclear, the US nuclear industry. Um, but then about five years ago, I decided I would commit my career to this reconvergence between the science of climate change and particularly where my fellow Republicans were in a policy space. Um, you know, initially it was as easy as we've got to get over climate denialism. Uh, Republicans have to acknowledge the problem. Uh, I think we've gotten through that. Very few deniers now. Um, but now it's a question of given the scale of the problem, what are my fellow Republicans going to do about mm -hmm. it? And then also, given that this is a multi-decade challenge, how are we going to work together? And that isn't a partisan statement. That's just like, how do policymakers, regardless of party, work together to solve this over the long term? Um, you know, this is, you know, I, I my quick summary when I meet with a member of Congress is, I like one of the models that MIT has, the MIT En-ROADS model. I went through an executive. I love that thing. Okay, you use that? Oh, I yeah, I've used it. Yeah. Okay, so I am, I am like people roll their eyes when I like pull out my iPad and go, all right. If you're meeting with me, you got to spend three minutes on this because I find it just enlightens people. Because a lot of members of Congress, when they think about climate, they think about like a segment of what's in that model. They think about coal or natural gas or renewables or electric vehicles, or a thousand, tr a trillion trees, but they don't think about the entire energy and climate mm -hmm. system. And that model in one dashboard, like puts it out there for people and you can see how they interact with each other. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. It also shows you that you need to use all of them or else we're not going to hit our goals. Why don't you explain what, why don't you explain briefly what the, what it is, the simulator, road simulator? So the, it's the MIT En-ROADS, E-N hyphen roads model. And what it does is it's a model of global 
energy and climate mechanisms. So you can go on and you can look at what current coal consumption or coal utilization is. And using a slider, you can say, I'm going to decrease the amount of coal used, or I'm going to increase the amount of coal, or I can go over the next 100 years, over the next 100. Right. And I can do the same thing with, with like electric, with transportation, electrification or, or a carbon tax. And then I can go to what's economic growth going to look like, what's population growth going to look like, and you can adjust all these sliders. You can also then go behind that this, the, the front screen and you can adjust in more with more fidelity some of these models. And what you find is that if you adjust any subset of the dials, you just don't get to a stable global climate. I mean, right now, that model's baseline, just like the course we're on right now globally, shows i think it's about a 36 to 40 inch rise in sea level and a six and a half degree fahrenheit increase in global level average temperature which by the way and i don't know where this interview is going to go but you do i one of the things about i i do not discuss climate change in celsius right because members of congress the people i don't do not understand what celsius <laughs> is so i mean it's just like at all so and i also think that when people say we are trying to have only 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius of climate change, even that aspiration is inappropriately reassuring mm -hmm. right now. I mean, the way I think we have to think about it is our current course is we're going to see a six and a half degree Fahrenheit increase in global temperature. That's going to drive a 36 to 40 inch increase in sea level. And what we have to decide is, are we going to change what we're doing to either increase that rate of temperature rise or decrease that rate of temperature rise? That's really where we are. Like base case, six and a half degrees Fahrenheit. That's the course we're on right now. Yeah. Well, I like talking about all that stuff. But um, before before we kind of go deeper into climate, I do want to hear more about you because I'm very in intrigued by you. And I, I, I love the angle you're taking and what you're doing. Um, I'm wondering if when you went into university, did you consider yourself at 17 or 18? Did you consider yourself a Republican at that time? Um, so, you know, I think most of my fellow Republicans are doing a lot of reflection these uh -huh. days on who we are. And like, I'll take one issue. Like I'm a free trader. Um, and the Trump administration's use of tariffs caused, you know, even just in that space for me to think about why am I a free trader and, and what, where am I vis-a-vis -vis the president's uh, trade policies? You know, I think I'm a Republican and certainly I started as a Republican before I knew very much about politics. And when I went to go work for a senator, I didn't know other members of Congress or other senators. Um, but I was a Republican because... My father was an entrepreneur, uh -huh. and I think if I had really delved into it at the time, what I really was was I was a capitalist, right? And you studied Soviet studies. Yeah, 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 I did. Well, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and in Albuquerque with the Sandia National Laboratories there and Kirtland Air Force Base there, everyone was aware of sort of the Cold mm. War. I mean, that was, that was a part of the economic lifeblood of Albuquerque. And it sort of hung over me. I mean, I grew up fearful of the Soviet nuclear threat. And that's why I studied Soviet studies. And that's why I went into the, doing weapons budgets and things like that. Um, but I think I was a Republican because I was a capitalist and the son of an entrepreneur. Um, th these days, when I think about my values... What I think I am fundamentally is risk adverse. 
So you know, I, I literally overinsure my life, my house, my cars. I have four kids, been married for 25 years. I am a very responsible person. Like I look after the people in my life. And I think when I think about the risk of climate change, I think the correct application of my conservative responsible values is to mitigate that risk. So you don't even have to prove to me that the climate is going to change a certain amount for me to say, I want to reduce the risk of that change. I mean, you don't have to tell me that one of my teenagers is going to wreck my car this afternoon for me to go out and buy an insurance policy against wrecking that car. I'm trying to, you know, and, and then I buy the insurance policy so that I guarantee that car is going to get fixed, right? I mean, it's so to me, it's so my values, I'm conservative from like my, like my just approach to life is, is, is sort of a responsible, uh, I think it, 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 it's rooted in that. I also happen to now, when you think about modern political things, I have sort of two North Stars. I'm very worried about the, the course of climate policy and global climate and the disruption that's going to occur and the way it's going to affect people's lives around the world. Um, I'm also very worried about our fiscal trajectory. I mean, we have demonstrated really no ability to do to for the government to balance the books. I mean, the the political course that we are You've on. You've seen the website is, with the global the budget going or with the deficit that goes up by like thousands of dollars every oh, second. So, so I think Maya McGinnis, who runs the Committee for Responsible Budget, has at least as hard a job as I do convincing policymakers to address fiscal issues as I do address, to address climate issues. You know, pre-pandemic, the fundamentals were the government collected $3.5 trillion a year in taxes and spent $4.5 trillion a year. And we had billion, we had trillion-dollar-year deficits. We're at $30 trillion. But we don't, to me, it's unmanaged. You know, if, if the government decided it wanted to reduce the annual deficit, I don't think we have the capacity to do that right now. Um, you know, I qualify for Social Security the year Social Security goes insolvent right about in those years. Um, I don't see the political will or the ability to address that absent a crisis. And that really bothers me sort of almost back to that original thought about, about being responsible. I mean, I had an interesting moment once. Um, I'm a kind of a federal budget geek and the federal government scores and does forecasts for a mm -hmm. decade. And I was actually reading some of the CBO's 10 year forecast documents and going through them in, in detail. And I set that aside and I logged into my Vanguard account and I was looking at my retirement modeling. My grandmother's 102 years old and doing well. So I think I've got about 50 years to go. And I was looking at where I am on my retirement planning. And I had this moment where I thought, why is the government only planning for 10 years? And I, as an individual, am planning for 50 years. Wouldn't it make more sense if it was kind of the reverse? Like the government should have the long-term plan. And it, it just, it's another example of where I'm really worried about some things for the long-term. So there you go. That's me, my history, kind of my values. Yeah, no, I appreciate, I appreciate that perspective a lot. And I would say that 
that you mentioned about the necessity for a crisis for people to actually fix a problem. That's something that bothers me about climate change as well. I don't really want to wait until there's some some huge catastrophe that makes people realize that we should take action. I feel like there should there's some should be some other mechanism to have people do that. And it seems like tr- trends are changing, I suppose, as well. So, so Ethan, I'll tell you, I'm actually worried about that scenario. So uh, I have believed for a number of years that the increasing evidence and the consequences of climate change would create political pressure to drive towards responsible climate policies. I am not certain about that anymore. I am now worried that the manifestation of climate change in increases losses from hurricanes and fires and insurance insolvencies and fiscal challenges could cause us to fight more and become more divided rather than unified on addressing this issue, right? So I I no longer think it is preordained that we will responsibly address climate. We could end up being like the swimmer who starts to panic and drowns because they can't just start doing a simple stroke and getting to the edge of the pool. And it, it could be really catastrophic and tragic. So one thing I want to ask you is, is why do you think the U.S. is taking this kind of, I don't know if piecemeal is the right approach to climate. They're trying to create little legislations like, uh, for example, I guess this is not the U.S. government, but California just created a law saying that you can only buy electric vehicles in 2035 rather than going after the approach that you and I are in favor of, which is just a broad sweeping carbon tax. Why are we not doing that. And we're going for these little legislative pieces to get action done on climate. Because we don't currently have the political will to do the bigger policy. Um, you know, I, I think that when the last time the federal government really contemplated a, a sort of a, a, a national climate policy was when we did cap and trade in 2009, whatever year that was, um, passed the House. They were short 10 or more votes in the Senate. And I think President Obama and particularly some of his staffers at that point recognized that the Congress was not going to pass major climate legislation. And so they pivoted and they focused on the Paris negotiations to make commitments internationally. And they focused on an expansion of the regulatory state using the Clean Air Act and CAFE and other statutes that have been passed to address other issues to repurpose them through the regulatory process in order to address climate change. And I. I say it respectfully. I think they recognized that there was not going to be legislation. There was an urgent need. And so they looked for other mechanisms. Now, I think we've in the last couple of years come to the limits of those other mechanisms. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the Paris process has proceeded. I think when the, the when, when, when the IPCC gathers in Sharm el-Sheikh later this year, they're going to be talking about Ukraine and high energy prices and, and global food shortages. They're not going to be as focused on climate as they would have otherwise liked to be. I think at the same time, the use of regulations under existing authorities is being challenged before the Supreme Court right now in West Virginia versus EPA. I think the Supreme Court is going to come in and say those statutes were not intended to regulate greenhouse gases. You, we have to re- reduce the use. You can't be has have this broad an interpretation of that statutory authority. And I think we're getting to this point where 30 years into climate, we're basically at, at having to start over again. I mean, not to be dismissive of the incremental approaches that have been done. The reason people are pursuing things at, at cities and at states is because we haven't been able to do it federally. And so I respect why they're doing that. Um, there is an urgency to this. And you can say 
you know, there's experiments going on in the states and local areas that might then influence federal policy, and that's all fine. But fundamentally, our problem is we have not been able to agree on a federal climate policy, uh, certainly not at the scale that is justified. That's where we are today. So we haven't been able to do it for the same reason why we're not able to get anything else done, because the two parties don't agree Um, on anything, or at least they want to stop the progress of another, the other party getting anything done. That seems to be where we're at now. Ethan, this is this is a tough Congress and political environment to legislate major things in. There's no question about that. Um, and we can spend a lot of time talking about what's happened because of redistricting and Citizens United and s- social media and isolation and all these sorts of things that have occurred. I genuinely, I don't tend to spend a lot of time on that. I mean, there's, there's lots of people who, Neither do I. I mean, five minutes into a conversation in Washington, D.C., it's just the woe is us kind of conversation. I, my general, I generally at that point in conversation go, you just got to play the cards you've been dealt. Like what's the best we can do with the current situation that we have right now? I will tell you that sometimes when I go for long walks, I do wonder if the American respect for individualism makes it harder for us to address challenges in our collective interest. Like do, is there a version, is there something about the way we pursue and respect individual liberty in this country that makes our particular democracy less able to deal with a collective problem like climate change? And you could also say like with our fiscal issues and some of the other great issues that are pending before the country. But honestly, you know, you can spend five minutes thinking about that and then you sort of go, got to go back and say, all right, well, I, I like our government. Don't get me wrong. I've traveled the world enough. I've seen places where governments are absolute disasters mm-hmm. and, and really tragic, have tragic consequences. So I'm a supporter of our form of government. You do just have to say, well, this is what we have. These are the cards we've been dealt. How do we work in this system? That's a fantastic perspective and a great transition into talking about what you're doing at Alliance for Market Solutions and uh, why, why does your organization exist and what do you do? Um, five years ago, we decided we were going to change Republican orthodoxy on climate change. I mean, it, it wasn't entirely, but in that five years ago, generally people thought of Republicans as denying climate change. And we decided that had to change. So we assembled a group of Republicans that have tremendous respect among elected officials. So the retired CEOs of big U.S. corporations. Um, and we developed our approach, which was we're going to talk Republican to Republican about climate change, and we're going to go in and propose a policy solution that we think has conservative origins. Um, we generally don't like regulations. We're fiscally conservative, so we get, we, we really have a hard time imagining the government subsidizing a transformation of the economy to address climate. And so we think there needs to be a price on carbon. A carbon tax. We're straightforward about it. So not, matter of fact, initially we thought, well, there's got to be things we can call it other than a carbon tax. And my attitude was, no, that's what economists call it. That's what pe- our critics are going to call it. Let's be straightforward. We think the most effective way to reduce the emissions of, of carbon pollution into the atmosphere is to impose a tax on it. And then we, we spent a lot of time about what that construct is. Um, we don't like taxes. I mean, we we think the beauty of a carbon tax is that nobody likes taxes, right? So my bumper sticker is, if we enacted a carbon tax, please don't pay it. Like I'm going to encourage all my friends, don't pay the carbon tax, right? Buy the car that 
doesn't emit carbon pollution, buy the hot water heater that doesn't emit carbon pollution, do everything you possibly can to avoid paying the carbon tax. That's what really drives the economic transformation. So, you know, people don't like talking about taxes. And really, that's kind of the core of the idea is that people hike taxes. Now, we also spend a lot of time with economists. And particularly as we look at the fiscal challenges that we have out there, you know, th this, this, you know, just like I talked about a divergence between science policy, uh, between climate science and, and climate policy, at some point, there's got to be a reconciliation between the amount of money the government takes in in taxes and the amount of money the government is spending. I, mean, I, I just don't, you know, I'm not a modern monetary theorist. I do not believe the government can borrow indefinitely. I think at this point, fundamentally, the debt that we've incurred today is going to hang over me for the rest of my career and particularly over the lives of my kids as they go out and try to prosper in an economy with trillions of dollars in debt that they are going to have to carry on behalf of the federal government. And I, I think it's tragic. So what we're interested in doing is we're interested in a carbon tax being used to drive down carbon pollution, but not to increase taxes. Use that revenue to reduce other taxes. Like I think taxes on earnings and income are the worst possible taxes when you're trying to grow the economy. What I want to, I want people to be incentivized to work hard and keep all the money that they make. They've earned it. They get to keep it. What I'd like to do is see taxes on the consumption side of the equation so they don't just go out and buy a bunch of goods all the time. Instead, they take their money and they save their money. They invest their money. That money goes into stocks. It goes into bonds. It goes into companies. That, that methodology ends up growing a larger economy that can better deal with the problems we have, like what are we going to do with a $30 trillion debt? We need a robust growing economy if we're going to carry $30 trillion in debt going forward. So that's my, my economic theory is a carbon tax is not just good climate policy. It's also good tax policy because it's a consumption tax. It allows us to reduce the burden on our earnings and income taxes. Yeah. That's very interesting. You share that perspective. I have a very similar one. It's not very well thought out though. I haven't spent much time thinking about taxes and I don't try to impose my ideas on anyone else. Um, before I get into, have you read principles for dealing with the changing world order by Ray Dalio? It's a new, it's a new book. So no, I have not read it. I've read other Ray Dalio stuff. He also has a book on markets as well. But yeah, you obviously know who he is. Well, it's just it, it talks the concerns about debt are not unfounded. Is is kind of the point of of what I'm saying about that. Well, so I, you know, I I uh, I spent it when when modern monetary theory was on the rise and people were suggesting that almost infinite federal borrowing wasn't a problem. It sort of undermined one of my platforms, and so I spent a fair bit of time on it. And I surveyed some of the economists that that I respected. Um, and, uh, I mean, I think Greg Mankiw up at Harvard is, as the publisher of the number one economics 101 book textbook for colleges. And, um, I remember fundamentally being convinced by him and others that the notion that the government could borrow indefinitely is just wishful mm -hmm. thinking. I am very worried that we're we're spending almost no, no time thinking about the federal debt and may not until it becomes the only thing we can think about and and that really worries me and it particularly worries me as you know i've got kids in college they're starting their careers out in the next couple of years and i'm worried that we might have really challenging economic times at the early stages of their careers and that would just be tragic i think i think you you might be right um, I, I did. I did want to hear a little bit more about your perspective on on taxes. Um, if it was kind of up to you, do you do you think that income taxes are are necessary, or is there some sort of other system we could use? Just opinion in in the middle here. 
I think income taxes are accepted because that's what we have in this country. I agree with you. And I think I think there has to be, I mean, the government has to have some take, right? I mean, the government, you know, look, I believe that you, there are programs that the government has. I'm not one of these like bare bones, denude the government kind of people, right? I, I actually believe that there needs to be a robust and successful government in this country. I want to see it collect the funds necessary for it to operate. I do think we should be having an ongoing conversation about what is the amount of taxes that should be paid and what are the services that we expect from our government. Right now, I think those are kind of, those two discussions have diverged, right? We now, we have a tax discussion, we have a government operations Strange. discussion, most governments are now on entitlements. I think there needs to be much more linkage between those two conversations. Um, you know, I think we accept income tax. Only 111 and, years old, right? And they had one during the Civil War yeah, as well. But but from an economic perspective, no, I think it's a bad way for a government to be funded. I think a government should be funded as largely as possible on the consumption side of the equation. Would that be a value I add? Think that, Is it similar to the value add tax? Like the, the VAT they yeah, have in so, Europe? So, they have both in Europe. <laughs> so a consumption tax, a VAT tax, a carbon tax, those are all consumption side right. of the equations. And to the extent you possibly can, yes, reduce the income tax and earnings taxes. After all, those are things we want. Incentivize to people to do the things that are all in our collective interest. Right. Yeah, no, uh, I, I really like that. I don't talk about talk taxes very much, but I'm, I'm not a huge fan of income taxes, especially as they go up, the more money you make. But uh, I don't want to get into the weeds with taxes. I am wondering what research says specifically about implementing a carbon tax in the US, what that will do to our economy and how that's going to affect like working class people. So so what the modeling does and at AMS, we do have modeling and it's on our website. We've used the Ernst & Young, uh, now they call themselves EY, macroeconomic model on several occasions. And you can go to our website. And what you will find is that if one imposes a carbon tax, first, it is much more efficient than a comparable set of regulations. So if you want to reduce carbon pollution X amount, and you can choose to do it through regulations or a carbon tax. A carbon tax is very efficient, so it will be a smaller burden on the economy than a comparable set of regulations. So the first variable is taxes are more efficient, have and as a result, reduce economic growth less than a comparable set of regulations. But the biggest driver about the long-term economic impact of a carbon tax is what do you do with the revenue? Right. Okay. If you take the revenue and you write checks to people, it has little economic growth impact. If on the other hand, you use that revenue to reduce the most distortionary taxes, once again, it's earnings and income taxes, you get economic growth. So you can actually look at a model where you address climate using a carbon tax and depending upon what you do with the revenues, actually have that policy drive economic growth rather than being a hindrance on economic growth. I mean, we do have to recognize that addressing carbon pollution is going to be a friction in the right. economy. It is going to be an economic burden to address that externality because right now what we're doing is we're saying you can pollute carbon pollution into the atmosphere for free. And the reality is that externality is not free. That externality has a cost. The most efficient way to bear it, to, 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 carry that cost is through a carbon tax. Right. Is, is there any way that reducing these emissions through a tax can actually end up growing the economy? Are you assuming that there's going to be some sort of new technologies that create more prosperity? 
because I under, you obviously you mentioned that link between usually more emissions leads to more economy because there's more, or a larger economy because there's more activity going on. But is there is there something in your research saying that instituting this tax will incentivize people and actually lead to more prosperity? So what I believe is that economies respond to economics. And if you really want to have, if you want to have innovation in a marketplace, you can do it a couple of ways. You can straight up pay for innovation, right? You can say, we're going to give you a production tax credit or an investment tax credit or other things like that. But if you really want to transform an economy, what you have to do is you have to have a price signal. You have to have people saying, I am willing to pay for something that is superior. The way you do that is by having people avoid paying for carbon pollution, right? So you impose a cost on the carbon pollution and then people say, to avoid paying this cost, I'm going to make investments over the short term and in the long term on something that has less carbon emissions associated with it. And all of a sudden you have a market driver. There's also another very interesting phenomena about carbon taxes versus carbon regulations from a timing perspective. Imagine, if you will, a company that emits some amount of carbon pollution into the atmosphere because they produce widgets and whatever it happens to be. If the government comes and says, we're going to regulate it and re force you to reduce the amount of carbon emissions that you make into the atmosphere every year, you know what the company's response is going to be. They're going to intervene during the rulemaking process. They're going to then sue to block the regulation. You're going to have to go to the courts. Presumably, the courts are going to send it back to the agency, the EPA. You're going to have to go through another rulemaking process. You're going to take some number of years to, to do this. So what happens is you get a lag because you're using regulations. If, on the other hand, you impose a tax the company immediately responds to the tax. So the cost of their goods that they're purchasing to produce their products goes up. They will immediately go off and look into the marketplace to, for a substitute that has a lower carbon emissions. Not only that, they won't even just look at the, at the carbon tax today. If you implement a carbon tax that has an index that goes up over time, they will look out to what the future price is going to be. And so they will bring that cost forward and try to address it today. So from a timing perspective, if you go with regulations, Economic actors seek to delay the impact of regulations. On the other hand, if it's a price signal, they seek to accelerate the price signal. I mean, just imagine your two vice presidents going in for the end of your bonus. The regulatory vice president goes in and says, we have successfully sued and blocked and the regulation's not going to affect us this year. If you go in and it's your purchase manager, he goes, yep, the price went up X percent because of the carbon tax. We went out and found other goods. I saved the company X amount of money. I want a bonus. I mean, so it's just... The difference in that approach of an economic actor is profound in the marketplace. If you want to do it with the lowest burden to the economy and you want that, uh, the transformation to happen the fastest, a price signal is the way you make that happen. Very eloquently put. I love that. And I am obviously, I'm a big advocate of, of the carbon tax. Um, when it comes to your perspective on where the money would go, there's definitely would be a lot. One of the things I like about the citizen climate citizen climate lobby proposal of the neutral, you know, the, the fee and dividend, like you say, would have a neutral effect on the economy. It wouldn't create more prosperity. But I think people would have an issue with wealthy people getting further tax reductions. So where if, if this money was going to go to reducing income taxes, what would be the mechanism that you would be in favor of for that? So I am comfortable sitting down with policymakers and talking about how what the revenue goes to. And, and I will have I have to confess, I'm kind of torn. Right. I hate taxes. I don't want to see taxes go up. I'm also deeply worried about the deficit and the debt. So 
I'll just confess. I mean, I'm a revenue neutral carbon tax person, right? If if taxes go up X amount, I want to see other taxes go down X amount. But right, sure. But if somebody said, but actually, we're going to use a portion of that to reduce the debt, which to me is a tax on my kids, I'm I'm open to that conversation. But when it comes to if you're if you're looking at a big like if you're looking at a a, a federal legislation. Mm -hmm. And it's got a total cost of, I mean, right now they're looking at reconciliation will cost $1.5 trillion. You could pay for a portion of that with a carbon tax, call that raise $500 billion over 10 years with the carbon tax. You can use that to offset other uh, expenses. Ideally, though, you don't use that money to make federal spending easier. Ideally, use that money so that you don't have to raise the corporate rate or the individual rate. I mean, one of the really interesting conversations we're going to have is the so-called Bush tax cuts expire in 2025. Mm-hmm. All of our individual rates are going to go up unless the government funds other finds another source of income. We've also got Medicare and Medicaid insolvency and the approaching insolvency of Social Security. So what, what I'm interested in doing is sitting down with policymakers and saying, look, just from a tax perspective, we should be looking at consumption taxes rather than increases on earnings and income taxes. And if you go with a consumption tax that's a carbon tax, you get the secondary or the second benefit that you're also achieving climate objectives and you don't have to burden a set of climate regulations on. I mean, the worst thing we could do is increase taxes on earnings and income and layer on a set of climate regulations. That's a double negative whammy on the economy. Well, I understand that. And I know that you're not necessarily in favor of more government spending or subsidies, but would it not make sense to take that money and invest it into technology or solutions that draw down um, legacy emissions out of the atmosphere? What would be your perspective on that? Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, if we're going to stabilize the economy, we have to get to net zero emissions and we also have to reduce- The climate. Yeah, sorry, sorry. If we're gonna stabilize the climate, we have to get to net zero emissions and we have to reduce the atmospheric concentration of CO2 and other greenhouse gases. So we have to both control our emissions and we're going to have to have direct air capture to actually get our, get our one, climate one back. One source. To yeah, that's a good example. We have to do that. Um, when, it, when it comes to how to invest in climate technologies, we have had success with production tax credits and investment tax credits for wind and solar and are contemplating 45Q for, for carbon capture and sequestration. I think there's a role for that. I am not a critic of that spending. Of course. But that is not on the scale necessary to address the problem. Those programs have helped us develop new technologies. But what really makes a difference is when the price of solar falls to below the price of natural gas and coal, when the price of wind does the same thing, hopefully the price of nuclear will do the same thing as well. That's when all of a sudden you get a cascading effect, when the market rather than the government subsidy. The the other challenge is, I mean, if you and I were out building wind or solar, the government is debating every year what the solar production tax credit and the wind production tax credit could be. We can't really rely on it because we don't know that it's gonna get extended, it has. But, you know, fundamentally, the government, you know, the joke is you and I both have more money than the U.S. government does. Uh, you might be surprised, actually. Um, <laughs> I, the, federal government is, the federal government's $30 trillion in debt. Right, right. Okay, yeah. By sheer number, I mean, but like income to debt I, ratio. I'm, it was, I'm running a small business that gives away half its money, but it is whatever. <laughs> uh, well, I, I will tell you. You have more money than the federal government does. 
Right, because they have so much less negative. Yeah. And, and increasingly, as the federal government looks at policies, like how long to do tax provisions and other things, they act like they're poor. Like they do one-year extensions of mm -hmm. things because they can't figure out how to do 10-year extensions of things anymore because tax policy is getting expensive and the government's really in debt. Yeah, it's pretty inefficient too. Um, so how do you go about influencing policymakers on this issue uh, with your organization? Um, so... You know, I I don't know quite how to summarize the answer to that. Um, our specialty is sitting down face to face with Republican policymakers and having serious conversations. Like this, these are our values. They're consistent with your values. Here's what we're seeing in climate space. Are you seeing the same things? Our party needs to have responsible positions on this. Here's how we're thinking about what that position could be. When we started this, I mean, I remember going in to see one senator who said, Alex, you're the first Republican to come talk to me about climate change. And I found in those early days, climate was a difficult issue for Republicans, still is for some of them, but it was a particular, they weren't reading the same climate stuff that you and I read, even like the news stories they weren't reading. And they definitely weren't, you know, reading the entire IPCC report and all that sort of stuff. Um, environmental organizations weren't coming to see them because they'd sort of written them off and they supported their Democrat challengers. So the Republicans didn't want to sit and talk to those climate advocates who were supporting their Democrat challengers and corporations, even corporations that were engaged on, engaged on climate. If they wanted to go see a Republican who didn't talk about climate, they wouldn't talk to them about climate. They'd talk to them about other things on the corporate yeah. agenda. And so when we started five years ago, we really found a lot of Republicans who did not know much about climate, hadn't talked about it, weren't comfortable talking about it. Like if they were asked climate questions at a town hall meeting, they didn't quite know how to respond to it. And so a very important part of what we did was just say, let's just talk about some of the basics so that you can be comfortable. Here's some, we did message testing so members could know, hey, if I get asked a question at a town hall meeting, here's how some of this, I mean, we did focus groups on how would you like to have Republicans talk about this? We did some polling for people so we could see what their constituents are saying. When I called up, uh, I mean, it's a true little funny story. So um, wanted to know what Republican voters were thinking about in a particular about climate change in a particular congressional district. A pollster was doing work in that district. So we called the pollster and said, we'd like to do climate polling in the district. And they said, okay, great. Pay us some money. We'll do a climate poll. So, okay, great. And they said, what questions would you like to ask? And we said, well, the climate questions. And the pollster said, I've never asked a climate question before. And so I remember sitting there just going, do you think the climate's changing? You know, how much do you think the climate? You're make, make, making up these questions. And then what we were doing later is we were going to other Republican pollsters and saying, look, we've just done these climate questions. Can we add these to these other polls that you're doing? And then nowadays we find Republican pollsters are asking climate questions. So it's, you know, it's an interesting, you know, a, 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 an example of the evolution of the climate conversation among Republican political people that we weren't having that. So how do we work? We work quietly, respectfully, generally face-to-face -face, talking to Republicans about climate change, all aspects of it in sort of a, we're here to help. We are actually Republicans. We actually want Republicans to do well. We care about a host of other issues that are important to Republicans. We don't want this to be a political liability for you. We need you to engage on this issue because otherwise Democrats are going to dictate the terms of this conversation. How can we work 
as Republicans, as conservatives to address this issue. I'm so happy that you exist. This is, this is awesome. <laughs> I am. This is fantastic. And yeah, thank it's, you. It's easier to talk about than it is to do. Sure. It's tough. I mean, it's tough work, but it's also, I mean, I, it, it does need to get done, right? I mean, it, it, we, we're going, you know, hurricanes are more intense. The losses we're going to see are larger. I also think about it from a moral perspective. Um, I'm really worried about swaths of the world where two years of drought will drive millions of people to migrate. Like I'm worried about what it does to infant mortality rates and life expectancy. So, you know, this goes both ways. Like I believe there's a moral and economic imperative to provide energy to people around the world who do not have access to Western levels of energy. I think there will be a human demand for that. I think it's justifiable because it's necessary for people to live for, for, for infant survival rates and other things like this, right? So I think we're going to see demand for more energy. We have to make sure we provide that energy in a way that doesn't drive really catastrophic changes to the climate. And so it's a balance, right? It's, it's, I, I do not believe in energy deprivation. I believe in energy in a way that considers the externalities associated with it and manages those externalities. But we're going to, you know, like forest fire season is going to get worse mm -hmm. and worse. And we have to have responses to that. It's a political imperative. Right. Well, your mindset, it, based on how you became interested in climate change and mitigating the risks, makes a lot of sense because, you, you, as you said in the beginning, you're so motivated by having this, this – you have this low risk tolerance. Um, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if the people you're speaking with you find have a, have a similar connection in the way they think and see the world or, or are the Republicans you speak with kind of all have their own different little niches in the way they see things. Um, it's, it's a very interesting question. So you can't, when you sit and meet with politicians one-on-one, -on -one, you find that a lot of stereotypes or assumptions about politicians aren't completely accurate. Of course. I find that most of the Republicans that we talk to are genuinely interested and because it's a private conversation will express their reservations, what they know, what they don't know. It's really an interesting conversation. I'm also very aware that they are politicians. I tell people that, that don't think about politicians running for re-election every two years. Think about them losing their job every two years. That's what the psychology, particularly as Republican politics have changed so much in the last few years and and Republican elected officials are trying to understand those changes and be responsive to those changes. I mean, there is a genuineness to American politics about that, about that they really are trying to understand how their constituents are thinking about this issue. One of the things that my mind goes to, though, from your question is, when we started doing this, frequently Republicans would say, well, where are corporations on this issue? What are they thinking? And so one of the things we would do was we'd go to corporate leaders and we'd say, hey, would you join us for these conversations with policymakers? And I do find that there's a difference between the way conservative Republican corporate leaders think about this and climate change. Politicians are trying to respond to their voters and their constituents. I think a lot of corporate leaders became successful corporate leaders because 
they looked to the future and they were trying to position their companies for success in the future. So they really were leading their companies that caused them to get promoted, to become more senior. And now they run these companies. And there's this psychological difference, I think, between political leaders and corporate leaders, which is that political leaders are responding to today or the next election and corporate leaders are trying to position their company for the years in the future. And I think as a result, corporate leaders today are more willing to acknowledge climate change and start to change the way the corporations are doing it. And, and, and they're also, they're responding to a broader set of constituents. I mean, a corporate CEO of a big company is thinking about their shareholders, their institutional investors, their employees, their customers. It's a, it's a diverse constituency that they are responding to. And so we're seeing you know, one of the things we've seen over the last five years is as Republicans have started talking about climate change, corporations that they talk to are now talking to them about climate change. And I think a number of corporate leaders deserve a lot of credit for really leading on this issue right now and, and leading in a, in a way that's different than climate advocates, but leading in a, we need to figure out how to produce goods and services in a manner that is consistent with long-term policy, uh, long-term climate sure. obligations. And I think they're doing some of the most interesting and valuable thinking in this space right now. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I got, I got a lot of value out of that. And um, yeah, I, I, I definitely prefer speaking with the, the, the corporate types. I'm more of the visionary think 20 years down the line kind of thing. So I think that was really valuable. What um kind of getting to the end here, what do you see as the United States role when it, especially when it comes to responsibility for securing a livable climate? Cause this is a global issue. Of course, I like to focus on talking about the U S but yeah, I mean, what? So, so I'll answer that. I'll answer that in two ways. Um, the first way is I would like to see the United States impose a cost on carbon emissions and then insist that any comp- country that trades with us recognize that cost and impose that cost through a border. Fantastic. Be- what that does is that uses the power of the U.S. market not just to change our own market, but then also to transform the markets of everybody who interacts with us. And when I see what the European Union is doing, I imagine. Western democracies, capitalist democracies collaborating to impose a price on carbon and then forcing that transformation on other parts of the world. So that's so my method of transforming the climate, the the, the climate economy is by using market forces. And then and, and but I will also say policymakers legitimately say, well, what what happens if we impose these costs and our and our competitors don't? And look, that's a problem. I think if we impose a carbon border cost and c- countries want to trade with us, they will be incentivized to adjust their practices. But I also think that sometimes leadership is not convincing all of your friends to do something at the same time. Sometimes leadership is moving to the front. And I... I I feel that a lot of people say, well, I can't get everybody to hold hands and go at the same time. And my attitude is, in my vision of the role of the United States, sometimes we lead. And sometimes we're big enough and influential enough that that induces other entities to follow us. And I'm comfortable saying, yeah, we're actually, we're actually going to get out in front of other countries on this. And so in some ways, it's there is an economic market-driven method for us to, 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 to address climate and then induce other trading partners to, induce, to, to address climate. 
but there's also just something about American exceptionalism that makes me say, I'm comfortable saying we need to do this as a leader, even if I can't figure out all the secondary and tertiary things that are going to have to occur. I can't put into words how much I love what you just said. I'm, I'm counting on you, man. Make it happen. Make it happen, <laughs> please. You've got all my support behind you. Uh, that all right. Well, that's, that's, that's two of us. That's fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, that picture you painted, I, I I really vibe with it, Alex. It's been it's been great having you on the show, man. Thanks so much for taking the time. It's a pleasure. It's great to get to know you. Do you have any final pieces of advice for young folks who are passionate about improving the world? You know, I just I have four kids. I'm realizing that my economic path and the world I live in is kind of established, but. In the lifetime of my kids, things could change rather dramatically. It's their world. Um, you know, it may be that people don't go to the beach anymore by the time my kids have kids. It may be that everybody's going to lake vacations rather than beach vacations. It may be that we have massive economic loss from hurricanes. It may be that, you know, there's all these consequences that I am truly worried are going to become manifest when I am an old man and I'm watching the impacts on my kids. And so I, I think the thing that I would say with, to the young people is it's going to be your world. You need to accept that responsibility and advocate for change. I, I believe that all forms of advocacy are effective. Like this is a very complex advocacy system in Washington, DC. There is a role for young protesters. There's a role for people like me who go down and sit in a room with three people and have a very different conversation. So I think the, the challenge for everyone is simply to figure out what's their most effective means of addressing this. And there's a role for everybody. I couldn't agree more. Alex, thank you so much for what you're doing. And thank you so much for taking the time to come and share your ideas. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you. It's great to you're meet welcome. you. All right, everybody. All right. We'll see you. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.